All right. Hello. Welcome. I'm Dr. East and I'm here with one of my favorite people from Pacific College. We go way back. We could probably talk for hours about all sorts of topics today. We may focus on and to at least start with pediatrics, ADD, ADHD. I have Dr. David Allen with me today. Welcome, David. So good to see you after so long. It has been a long time. Great to see you. We were just talking about it. I think it's been, we did our doctorate together back from 2010 to 2013 when we were part of cohort four at Pacific College. So we have some good old memories we could share about that, but what have you been up to since then? I know your practice specializes in pediatrics still, correct? Yeah, so I live in uh, Encinitas now, so I've been I have a private practice and I treat both adults and kids. So, you know, on any given day, maybe 20, 30% of my practice is kids. Uh, and then I'm teaching down at the college. So I'm teaching pediatrics, I'm teaching the intro class, the fundamentals class, and then I'm the uh, department chair for the, own, for the oriental medicine department. So yeah, so it's been teaching and it's been uh, treating kids. It's been great. Oh, and I've been supervising also at PCOM, which has been great. Uh, that's been a new endeavor. So that's been a lot of fun too. Do you do P shifts or are you, or both? Like you supervise over the interns and P practitioner shifts? Or I was doing practitioner shifts for a little bit, which is just me treating patients and the students watch. But then I, now I've just transitioned to just supervising. So I have the four students under me. They talk to the patient and then come out and consult. And then if they need any help with diagnosis and treatment, then I'll do that with them. Um, that's been a lot of fun actually. In a new, I, did it, a, I did it for a number of years. I yeah, did it for yeah. a number of years. Very rewarding. And you have so much knowledge to share, especially since you studied under Alex DeBerry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask about that a little bit, how that relationship began. Was it at school? Was it outside of school? It, well, it was at school because he was teaching the first semester class. So when you're learning about yin yang and five elements and all that stuff, that was his class, you know, and so everybody who came through PCOM went through him first. And I had come from, uh, you know, a few years out from my undergrad and I had had some pretty, a couple of a pretty amazing teachers there. So I was pretty keyed into what 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 a good teacher was in a sense. And, and when I took that class, I was just like, oh, this is my guy. You know, this is, he was just speaking my language and I had been, you know, studying Chinese culture and you know, Taoism and these kinds of things. So when I, when I took the class with him, I said, oh, this is, this is my guy. So at that time he, he was uh, in full swing in his practice. He was treating four days a week out of his clinic and he was treating about 15 patients a day. And then, so at that time he had, uh, students could come and assist with him. So usually he had like one or two assistants on the on any given shift, and so I just jumped in. I was like, "Hey, I don't want to, I want to assist with you," and he said, "Fine, come." And then so basically through the whole program, through the whole four years of PCOM, basically I was there once or twice a week just assisting with him. So that basically entailed, you know, pulling needles, flipping patients, doing the odd moxa or uh, massage, and this and that, turning tables, turning rooms. Um, and then in his practice, it was actually quite similar to mine. On any given day, 15 patients, he would see two, three kids, right? But this was like every day of the week. So that qualified as a pediatric specialty. And, um, and so my favorite thing was always to go in during the diagnosis. And so you didn't always get to do that because you were busy you know, doing mocks or something. So he would go in and do diagnosis. But my favorite thing was always to kind of trot in behind him when he actually got the question and uh, talk to the patients and you know, just kind of see him in action with the patients. And so it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun working with him. But one of the things was the way that it would work with the kids was he would go in, he would talk to the kids, or he would talk to the parents rather. And then uh, what would happen is he would diagnose and then he would take out his little eyeliner pencil and he would draw in all the points that he wanted you to do on the kids. And then usually you'd walk, you know, so usually then he'd draw something like a giraffe on their arm or something like that. Cause he had all those uh, tattoos on his forearms and the kids really liked those. So then he was like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one. So then he'd take the eyeliner pencil and draw in on their arms. 
And it was really amazing because, you know, you learn little things in that situation, for example, like I learned that it's good to keep the eyeliner pencils in the freezer, because then when you want to uh, sharpen them, it's much easier to sharpen because they're not so soft, you know. So I learned a lot of little tips like that, really useful things for my adult life now. And um, so he would draw the points in, he would, you know, draw the little animals on the kids. And then uh, he would step out and go, you know, needle somebody else. And then I would go in and actually do the treatment. Oh. So he would spend maybe, you know, 10 minutes with the, with the family diagnosing, figuring out what's going on. And then I would step in the room and I could see all the points he wanted done. And then I would actually sit there for maybe 15 minutes and do the treatment. So when I got started doing that, I you know I was 23, 24. I wasn't that interested in kids. It wasn't something that I was like super passionate about or something. You know, I had very little experience with kids. Um, but over the course of four years working with kids, it got to be my favorite part of the day. You know, because you would just sit and hang out with the kid and hang out with the parents, and the parents were just you know love to talk, and the kids were you know lovely, and it was just it was always a lot of fun. So it just over the course of the years just became kind of my favorite part of the day was just sitting, giving treatments to the kids, just hanging out with them and talking to them, and the kids were always a lot of fun. So it just was something that I, that relationship was just sort of something I fell into. So working with kids, it wasn't something. It wasn't something that I showed up with. It was just something that was sort of inculcated into my head, just hanging out with him enough. Um, but over the years, we he and I just kind of became friends. You know, we uh, traveled together and um, you know just hung out together a lot. And he used to take me out riding horses and stuff. So it was, it was a fun relationship. Yeah, yeah, I, and I resonate with him being your guy. Same thing for me. I was going to go to UCSD medical school. Somehow I got sent to Pacific College and I sat in on a lecture of his, the first year lecture. And that was it. I said, well, this is my school. These are my people signed up, went to school there. And then also during our doctorate, we were privileged to sit with him again during our pediatrics round and watch him do the coloring on the children with the eyeliner pencil and drawing the animals. And so when you went in and treated, would you treat needles, shonishin, a mix of both? What, what modalities do you typically use with children? Is it always needles or do you just kind of assess? Yeah, working with him far and away, the most common thing was the uh, topical e-stim. And that yeah. was sort of the innovation that he brought to it because over the years before I had even met him, over the years he had played with a lot of different, I guess you could say technologies. You know, he was using shonishin and he was using needles and he was playing around with lasers of different types and he was playing around with different things. And he ultimately landed on trying this kind of what, what, what he would call the tickle machine. You know, and the tickle machine was just your standard uh, e-stim with the alligator clips, <clears throat> but then you just uh, you just clip into a small piece of wet cotton ball, and then you put the wet cotton ball on the skin, and this stimulates the skin. And uh, and I think this works in kids. I think the reason this works in kids is because their their skin layer is so thin. And you know how when 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 kids get burned, it's it's quite bad quite easily. And as they get older, that 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 skin layer thickens up. And but I think because they're so young and the skin is so thin, you can kind of access those like deeper UN chi layers. You know maybe those deeper nerve layers um, more readily. So the the system doesn't seem to work quite as well in adults, but in kids this works really well. So when I was working with him at the clinic, that that was all I was doing was just the yeast him. Um, so he would just basically draw in points and the way he would do it, and this is the way that I practice now generally, is he would draw in like say two earth points. So he would pick a spleen point and a stomach point. Then he would draw in two say wood points. So then there'd be a liver and a gallbladder point. And then there would be two water points. So on any limb, there would basically be six points to do. Then he would draw in points on the back and you could stimulate those and then any local stuff like if it was uh, sinus issues or something like that, you could you could see the little drawings on the face of Tong or something like that, Yin Tong, and um, or if it was asthma, maybe he would add a couple of points, gallbladder twenty one to relax the chest, or Ren seventeen, or different points for different local treatments, and then so you would, it helped to know where the issue was, so you could make sure you caught all the points, and. Um, 
So, you know, in that case, treatments, treatments would take about 15 minutes to get all the points done or thereabouts, um, which was about the, li the, the limit for the kid's attention span generally. So, um, so get in and get out. But, um, but nowadays in my clinic, you know, I'm, I, I don't have the assistance there to help me out. So um, kids generally I'm doing, if they're old enough, I'll do needles. So, but this is, you know, this is a question of each kid. I have 30 year olds who aren't old enough for needles, of course. So, but you know, in general around maybe six or seven years old for a lot of my kids, I can start transitioning them from the tickle machine over to the needles. Um, and that's always nice. I, it's, I think the tickle machine works great, but there's something about the synergy of having all those points in at once mm -hmm. uh, and being able to leave them down for about, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes, depending on how old they are. Um, I, I think there is something special about that, but I have to say the, the Easton works great. Um, a lot of my students ask about uh, lasers and that kind of thing. I, because Alex wasn't using lasers, because he always, he just never got the results that he sort of was looking for with the lasers. I, I just never got into using them. I do know other, you know, pediatricians who kind of swear by lasers and stuff. So I, I think lasers probably work fine, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of what we were up to. What about ear seeds? I know a lot of people will use ear seeds <clears throat> in pediatrics on the points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we weren't doing that too much, although occasionally we would do this thing, you know, those, um, what do they call those, those bruise plasters where you peel the plastic off the thing and you put that over the affected area, say some injury that won't heal or some muscle, you know, some muscle strain or something. And it kind of has that icy hot quality and the herbs yep. go in there. What do they call those? The um, the uh, dog skin plasters, they mm -hmm. call those. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, those used to be, traditionally, those were actually made out of dog skin. And they would, those were dog skins. And what they would do is they would soak them in the herbs and then they would lay that dog skin over the area. So nowadays we just use these, I don't know what they're made of, some kind of plastic. Um, but they said, because dogs are um, one of the most young animals, like they're very hot by nature. And so um, typically with these kinds of liniments and stuff, you add these yang tonics into them. And the yang tonics are said to help push the effect of the other herbs, like the blood movers and that thing through the skin layer to reach that area of stagnation. And so those yang tonics there to help push uh, herbs through. Well, also the dog skin there, because the dog skin is so young, then it helps to to create penetration of the herbs through the skin layer down into the affected area, um, and so that was the that was the traditional way. So that's why we have these these plasters that you peel the plastic off. That's the kind of the tradition there. So what what he would do sometimes is he would cut little squares off of that, say maybe half a centimeter wide, you know, little little square, and you peel the plastic off, and then you put that on the points that you want to affect. And that was what he was up to more than the ear seeds. And that was, he especially did that in cases of, say, um, like acute wind attack, you know, the kid's coming down with something fairly recently. You put that on UB12 and UB13, lung seven, these points that you want to have a relatively sort of aromatic mm -hmm function or action on the point because it has the menthol in them usually so kind of helps to open the point and, and give that pathogen a way out and so he was often doing this uh for for these kinds of points though I, it has to be said if you're gonna do that on points that the kids can reach such as lung seven then the first thing they're gonna do is pick them off so if if if, if anybody out there wants to do this the thing you have to do is get some cool like uh band-aids or something mm -hmm. you know like i don't know like spongebob whatever band-aids you put those over the dog skin or over the over the over the plaster on the point there because otherwise then otherwise the kid will pick off the plaster but if they have a cool band-aid then they're going to go around showing off their band-aid they'll keep the point on they'll keep the plaster on there for a little while so that was more what he was up to rather than the ear seeds what about moxa is moxa good idea bad idea contraindicated when's a time you might use moxa with children? Oh, moxa is great, actually. Moxa has a couple of interesting uses. Uh, one, 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 of course, you know, in issues of deficiency, coldness, kidney deficiency, spleen deficiency, of course, this is really amazing. Um, I, we were only ever doing indirect moxa. 
on kids. There's a thing in Japan where sometimes the Japanese parents will say to their kids, if you don't behave, I'm going to take you to the moxibustionist and he's going to do moxa on you. Because in Japan, they'll tend to do uh, direct moxa, like scarring moxa, and it's oh. not so pleasant. And so that was like a threat, you know, like, I don't know what we do in the United States. But in Japan, this would be a typical threat. I'm going to take you to the moxibustionist if you don't behave. Like maybe here it's like I'm gonna call your father or something. But right, right. There it's like no, I'm gonna right. call the moxibustionist. This is much much worse. Um, so we were just doing indirect moxa, um, but so you know areas like Ren eight, Ren six for those kinds of spleen and kidney deficiencies, especially if the abdomen was cold. You know, so palpation on the abdomen. Um, so if a kid comes in and there's some kind of digestive issue, there's say failure to thrive, they're not growing at any age, you know, it could be a couple of months, it could be, you know, 12 years old, um, you know, checking the abdomen, checking REN8, checking REN6 to see if there's any, if the temperature seems cooler than the rest of the abdomen in that area, then certainly some indirect moxa would be great. Um, same for the low back, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to push on the spleen and kidneys, then this would be great. What's interesting, though, is that we also had other uses for moxa, for example, like ear infections. So uh, one of the one of the uh, kind of silver bullet treatments for ear infections that's really nice to have in your pocket is if a kid comes into your clinic and they are in the middle of a painful ear infection is have if the parent can get the kid to do it, have the kid lay down in the parent's lap, kind of relaxed with the affected ear showing upwards. And then you, what you do is you pull out the indirect moxa, you pull out the moxa stick and you do moxa around the ear, just kind of circling around the ear. And that warmth actually, I, we could discuss why we think this might be happening, but the, the, the warmth actually will help the ear to calm down, the pain to calm down, the kid will be much calmer. Then you can go and do your, um, your, your tickle machine treatment or your needling, whatever you want to do once the kid is calm. Because I tell you, if a kid comes in with an ear infection, they are not happy if they're, yeah. they're not feeling so hot. So that was an interesting sort of treatment that he would do with kids. And I, it's never not worked for me to the point where, in fact, if a kid is prone to ear infections, I'll just send the parent home with a moxa stick. It's really a nice thing to do. Although I will give you this caveat about that is if you're ever doing moxa on a kid, always, always have your hand between the stick and their head. Yes. Because you That's never know, idea. kids are twitchy, you know? So you never know when the kid is just gonna jump up out of nowhere, even when they don't feel good and burn themselves on the moxa. I've never had it happen to me except one time I was doing moxa on a kid and he got twitchy on me and it touched uh, some of his hair and burned a little bit of the oh. hair. So uh, this, it does happen. Um, in that case, what I was doing, and this was another thing that uh, Alex was doing quite a bit, which was actually moxa on do 20. Okay. Which is quite interesting because if I was to do mox on do 20 on you or myself or, you know, it would, you know, you know how that would go. You'd end up with a headache. You wouldn't sleep well. This would not be a pleasant experience. There's so much heat to be putting into the head. But in kids, it, it, it's, it doesn't have such a hot nature for kids. Uh, what it does is, is the way Alex would always say this is, is moxa on do 20 fills the sea of marrow. Uh -huh. And so where we would use this is things like insomnia. So kids who have insomnia up to around age eight or nine, then this was actually very useful and you could do mox on do 20, you know, five minutes or so, and then they would often sleep much better. And we're talking about things like yin deficiency. Right, right, right. So yin deficiency, you got this heat rising upwards. It's getting into the chest. It can get into the head, that kind of thing. So you would think that would be contraindicated on some. You would think I'm going to add more heat in a situation where there's already heat rising into the upper body. And yet it didn't seem to have such a, it wasn't such a warming technique in this case. It was like Alex would say, it was more of a filling technique, filling the Sea of Mara. So again, why that would be is, is sort of strange. And what's interesting about that is where, where he would also use this, and uh, what I did this quite a bit on his patients, was in some of his geriatrics patients who had insomnia. And sort of his, his, his treatment for that was, if you have a geriatrics patient who has insomnia, like the indeficiency type, frequent waking, trouble staying asleep, that kind of thing, 
if they also have issues like gait issues, like unsteady on their feet, balance issues, and that kind of thing, that was his kind of pairing. If there were sleep issues and gait issues, if you did MOXA on Do20, both of those things would improve. And it was funny because it happened enough times to me that I never forgot it where patients would come, geriatrics patients would come in and they'd say, oh, that really worked great on my sleep. And, and you know, the moxie on the dude on, on my head, it really worked great for my sleep. And, uh, you know, I do feel more steady. But then they'd say things like their eyes would be better or they would regain their sense of smell or their hearing would be better, which was quite amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. You really yeah, need to go for that. Yeah, you wouldn't think. And I, I always thought about that because, you know, there was recently, actually, a couple of years ago, there was some research showing that um, elderly people who lose their sense of smell, this is a very strong indicator of, uh, I think, five-year mortality rates. You know, the, the, um, so the fact that somebody loses their smell is an indication that they're likely to pass away within the next five years, a very reliable, strong indicator for elderly patients. But if they regain their sense of smell, then maybe, maybe their life is extended. This would be an interesting line of research, but it, it definitely occurs to me. So anyways, so as far as MOXA goes in kids, I'm doing uh, REN8, REN6 in cases of spleen kidney deficiency. Uh, I'm doing DO4 in cases of, um, you know, sort of kidney deficiency as well. Uh, doing around the ear for ear infections, doing do 20 for sleep issues. Oh, one other one is uh, kids who are having trouble growing, like we were talking about a minute ago, this sort of, um, you know, let's say you have a 10 year old, they come in, they're a little small for their age. Well, then the typical thought process around this as well, this is likely a spleen deficiency. This was Alex's thought process. Uh, and so let's strengthen the, the spleen. But if there were also any kind of uh, like spine issues like scoliosis or any kind of uh, like sort of spine developmental issues around, you could add uh, Moxon Do 12 as well. And Moxon Do 12 was said to straighten the spine and said to help with growth and to strengthen the kidneys and to strengthen the spleen as well. And so this was, this. these were, these were, I, I have, to rack my brain a little more, but these are the things that I remember doing mocks yeah. on kids. So I certainly do it quite a bit. Would it be appropriate for cases of ADHD, ADD, ADHD with children? Well, certainly, certainly it would be useful in the, uh, in the more what we call the inattentive type. So we have in, uh, when we talk about ADHD, we have uh, the true hyperactivity type. You know, those are kids that are kind of bouncing off the walls. And then you have the inattentive type. And the inattentive type, the inattentive type. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah, so the inattentive type is your more kind of spaced out kids. Yeah. So in both cases, the kids aren't paying attention to what whatever they're supposed to be paying attention to. But in one case, the kid isn't paying attention because they're bouncing off the wall. In the, in, in the latter case, then the kid isn't paying attention just because they're kind of spacing out. They're sort of picking mental daisies, you know, just sort of sitting there, just spacing out, having trouble paying attention. Any, any acupuncturist who's listening will remember that experience in, in classes after lunch where so-and-so was kind of talking and talking and talking. And for the life of you, you couldn't seem to get yourself to pay attention to it. You're having the, the inattentive type of experience there. And in general, this is diagnosed as spleen deficiency, spleen chi deficiency. Um, because remember the spleen, the spleen is related to the intellect, the E, right? So this, this uh, strengthening the spleen then strengthens the intellect. And when we talk about the intellect, we mean sort of the ability to think your way through a problem, mm -hmm. the ability to, uh, you know, um, to, you know, to memorize something, to put away memories, to organize a problem and, and to be able to tackle it, so to speak. And so all of these functions, these sort of higher rational frontal lobe functions, these neocortical functions really relate to the, to the spleen. And so in that case, if it's spleen deficiency, then certainly uh, moxa can be very useful in that case. Uh, you know, same areas you could do uh, REN8, you could do uh, DO4. I don't tend to do very much moxa on points like stomach 36 or I, I don't tend to do much sort of, uh, what would you call it, like almost kind of channel oriented moxa. I mean, 
their bodies are so small, maybe it would be hard to sort of target those areas. I don't know, but just the way that we always did it in the clinic with Alex was just to use larger areas, low back, use the abdomen. So in the cases of inattentive type, I would be likely to use probably the abdomen and, and very likely as well the low back as what a way to strengthen the that cheek. What's the ratio you see between inattentive and hyperactive. Um, is it 50-50 or are most ADHD cases overactive? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because, you know, when you're talking about kids who are, say, just kind of hyperactive, kind of bouncing off the walls, fidgety kids, these are the kids who are sort of, quote unquote, kind of problems in the classroom. They're the ones who are sort of disrupting the learning process. And so those are the kids that are much more likely to sort of get caught out you know, they're going to get called out by the teacher. They're going to, you know, so there's going to be, you know, even if the kid is perfectly happy, but they're just kind of pretty rambunctious, then they're still, it's going to be a problem for the classroom. And so these kids are getting called out, I think, much more frequently. So I do see these kids a lot more. Whereas the other type, this sort of inattentive type, this spaced out spleen deficiency type, I think these kids, because they're not sort of, again, quote unquote, behavioral issues in the classroom, these kids are, you know, usually doing just well enough to get through, to get by, Got it. you know, and I think a lot of, a lot of people, when, when you talk about this, a lot of people suddenly see themselves, they're like, oh, I was that kid, I wasn't hyperactive, I was having trouble paying attention in school, and, I, but, you know, I wasn't, it was, I just was kind of smart enough just to get by, but I never thrived. Right. And so I, objectively, it's hard to say, you know, is it which one is more common than the other, you know, in, in terms of from a, a research standpoint, which one is really is there more of, but certainly in, in practice. And I think uh, psychologists and psychiatrists would probably corroborate this, which is that the hyperactive kids are much more common in your practice. Probably they're more called out, like you said, yeah, the yeah, ones yeah. that are spaced out, they're, oh, they're quiet. So um, did you do your doctoral research on ADHD? Was that your capstone centered around that? What was your capstone centered around? Uh, my capstone was centered around looking at, so the, the capstone was for our doctoral program, the capstone was sort of the the sort of the research project at the end there that we that we did and this mine was actually to look at um, the the all of the textbooks that currently existed in the English language around pediatrics and to say okay just to just to look at all of them pick them apart and say okay what what is here and what is missing right so what I did basically was I just bought all the books got my hands on all the uh, existing English language pediatric textbooks and um, just looked at them and said, okay, what are we missing here? And the first thing that was very obvious was there's no books that really tackle uh, herbs and acupuncture at the same time. You know, for example, you have Julian Scott's book, which is strictly acupuncture. He does have a separate book, but that's all Western herbs, interestingly enough. Uh, then you have Bob Flaws's book at TCM Handbook of pediatrics and that one is mainly herbs and he does have a few points that he gives at the end of each disease discussion but not very many and that's not a very in-depth discussion so that would be the first issue that we were seeing with the with the uh, sort of existing textbooks was that there wasn't one textbook that really encapsulated both of those things and so that was something that we that that Alex and I both sort of thought we wanted to work on there um, and the other thing was that the thing that he and I both noticed was that all of the existing books, there weren't very, they didn't tackle very many diseases. So the, the you know, they would have a list of diseases that, you know, they would usually intro theory stuff and then how to diagnose disease. And then there would be a list of symptoms or list of um, diseases at the back of the book. And there was just, there would always be, you know, like 15, maybe 20. And, you know, I always felt like, well, geez, in my clinic, I'm seeing, easily a hundred things, you know, that we could easily talk about. It would be no problem to just talk about that. So what I thought maybe would be good was to break that apart and really, and really look at that. And Alex, what he always wanted to do, uh, and I, I think what he always hoped I would do, and now 
what I'm secretly hoping one of my graduate students will do is, um, is to make actually rather than a proper textbook would be to make like a clinical manual. And the difference there is that there would be no need to reinvent all of the uh, theory portion. You know, like, okay, here's kids are naturally spleen deficient, kids are naturally kidney deficient, they're always, they're always excess, you know, all of the intro stuff, get rid of all of that and just have diseases, you know, and have it, he almost, he really wanted it to be like almost like a spiral bound notebook, like, yep. you ever looked at like the five minute um, pediatric consult for Western doctors, you know, yep. so then you just open it up and everything you need is on the on two pages and, um, and so organizing it where you just literally every disease you could think of and then that we've ever treated in the clinic and flesh that out in a way that's easy to digest, easy to understand. So the practitioners can just open to that page, instantly see what they want to do and then get on with it. I, so, I love that idea. I, something very practical. So it'd be, would it be alphabetized by condition? So ear infection, these are some of the things you can do with it. You got the mocks around the ear. These are some points, there's some herbs. Do you also, what else do you use? So. Uh, TCM wise herbs, the e-stim tickle machine, some plasters, acupuncture, acupressure. What other tools are in your toolbox when you're treating children? Yeah, so you had mentioned actually earlier the shonishin, and so shonishin for for people who aren't aware of that, shonishin is a uh, Japanese treatment uh, for kids. And what happened was, is, is you have one of the earliest uh, sort of specialties in Chinese medicine actually was pediatrics in a way, because what you had very early on was you had these pediatric twina treatments in China. And so that would require you to do, you know, you see in the, in the, in the twina books, it's like, okay, you know, use your fingers and scrape this area for, you know, 400 repetitions or something like right. that right? and then okay now circle your palm on this area for 120 repetitions or something like that okay that's fair enough so then you do that well most of those massage techniques in the chinese textbooks that you see they, they take about you know a minute and a half to two minutes to complete and then so the story goes that these massage these pediatric twina techniques the moon fairies took those pediatric twina techniques the moon fairies carried those from China to Japan and introduced them to Japan. And so um, then the Japanese being Japanese decided they wanted to innovate on this. And what they did is they took those same areas of the bodies, the same techniques, and rather than just using your hands, they introduced tools. And so traditionally the first tool that was introduced was actually the foot of a mole. So <laughs> the mole's feet look like little shovels kind of with their little toes sticking out for all that digging they do. And so I, I think in Japan, there's probably a lot of three-legged moles running around. But so you would traditionally, you would use a, a mole foot. And so the introduction of a tool as the medium of treatment, as opposed to just using your hands, then took what was maybe a minute and a half to a two minute treatment down to about 15 to 30 seconds. And so this was a very nice sort of innovation, especially in, in the modern context. Um, so now you see in, in pediatrics nowadays, you don't see too much pediatric, uh, you don't see the, the Chinese style twina done too much here in the West. Uh, most people are in fact doing this Japanese shonishin. And the shonishin translates as like small person needles or something like that. Yeah. And um, it's a painless, non-invasive way to treat kids just using little tools for scraping the skin, tapping the skin, doing different things. People are using things like tations and diff right. there are many, many different tools. Um, you know, you could use things like, the tool is not really the point though, it's just having one. So like, you know, you get like a feisty kid on the table and you wanna do some kind of treatment. Well, I, I got no problem pulling out like a race car or, you know, Hot Wheels car and that's my Shonishin tool. Yep. Or, you know, I have like a rabbit's foot or something like that. That's kind of my mole's foot. And, um, you know, so then it, these kinds of things that the kid is like, well, what, what are you doing? You know, you're pulling out a like a brush, a hairbrush or something. Yeah. And this is how I'm gonna tap you and scrape you. And the kid's like, yeah. you know, like brushing their arm hair and the kid is like, you know, totally enthralled by this. Um, so the way I tend to structure my treatments is, you know, talk to the parents, find out what's going on, talk to the kid to the extent that it's possible. 
then I'll pull out my Shonishin tools and I'll do a little bit of Shonishin. And the reason for that is Alex had the notion that what you wanted to do in pediatric treatments was you wanted to kind of activate their chi, get their chi sort of circulating. Um, uh, because one of the things about kids is that naturally their lungs, kind of from a constitutional perspective, their lungs aren't quite as strong as they could be. They're still developing into their lung capacity and uh, lung strength. And so the lung chi isn't quite as strong as it could be, which is why they're getting sick so often, why they're so prone to asthma and breathing issues, these kinds of things, right? So, but the fact that the lungs aren't that strong means that the chi is not being pushed through the channels very well. So remember that the lungs are what's in charge of pushing the chi through the channels. Um, and so if the lungs aren't that strong, then chi circulation isn't necessarily that strong. Mm. Then they even say things like in the, in the Chinese textbooks for pediatrics, they'll say things like, well, the, even the channels themselves aren't well formed. So then the chi, the, the even if it's being motivated correctly by the lungs, then it doesn't flow that efficiently through the channels because somehow the road isn't built, isn't finished being built or something like that. And so the thing to do was to do a little bit of shonishin or some kind of therapy just that had this kind of generalized uh, sort of um, stimulation to just get the chi moving. You know, and this could be, I mean, you don't even have to be doing shonishin. This could just be grabbing onto their ankle and kind of shaking their leg a little bit in a way that kind of oscillates their body and gets them moving a little bit, you know, so to the point where you can see their head kind of moving back and forth in a gentle way. And that just kind of activates their chi, gets their chi moving, you know, or even just getting them to laugh and relax gets their chi moving make sure that because the kids walk into your clinic I'm like you know weird looking with a beard and I'm tall and big and you know they're in this tiny room and because of their weak lungs children are naturally claustrophobic and so then getting them to just relax you know because they come into my space and it's like maybe their livers kind of clench up a little bit they're like ah, I don't know so then you get them to relax then you know then the chi can move. So different strategies. So I'm typically very often using shonishin as a way, and in a, in a very generalized way, just to get their chi to activate. Then I'll come in with the e-stim, or then I'll come in with some kind of, say, um, contact needling, like a non-invasive acupuncture sort of needling style, or you know, usually the e-stim. So I'll come in with the e-stim. So I'll do the shonishin, then I'll do the e-stim, then they're done. What's a typical protocol? So I'm, I'm going to tie in a little bit with your study of all the textbooks that are out there on treating pediatrics. If we look at that in parallel to our classics on treating adults, it's like, you know, you come in for 12 to 20 treatments for certain conditions and you see a patient on that regularity. With children though, with their chi being underdeveloped and so close to the surface, how often do you typically see a child? What would be a typical treatment protocol with a child, like six <laughs> treatments, three, four, one? What do you, what's your experience on that? What's really nice with kids is how quickly they respond. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like that's, that's satisfying my own personal ADHD, where I don't have to wait a long time to see the, the treatment work. So kids respond very, very quickly, which is really, really nice. You know, things that I might let go for a long time in an adult, I'm not, I'm much more pushy in that sense for results with kids. I wanna see even one treatment, two treatments. I wanna see a difference. You know, it's not that they're cured, but I wanna to start to see things move along. You know, like for example, in my geriatrics patients, they come in with arthritis, I, you know, it's like I might let them go for a month or so before I really expect to see, you know, some, some yeah. you know, once a week or something, and sometimes even longer. Whereas in kids, I demand very rapid results. So like it. then it just becomes a question of if I'm not seeing the results I want within one or two treatments, then, you know, I'm more likely to change up the treatment than I am in an adult. And, you know, then at that point, once we start getting some results, then I just have to decide, well, is it, is it enough results or do I want more results? You know, so I have to think about, you know, do I have to increase the amount of stimulus or, you know, change the points a little bit, but in general, kids re re respond so quickly. So I'm treating kids generally about once a week. I don't generally need to see them more than that, except in the case of acute issues like these ear infections, right. like uh, a lot of these respiratory conditions, you know, I want to see them more often 
you know, like so I, you I see keep like once a week for four weeks, once a week mm -hmm. for six weeks or. Yeah. Typical as far as uh, to your, to the question about protocol. Yeah. So about once a week and I usually about four weeks, just give me about four weeks and let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's go from there. And like I said, even one treatment, I expect to see changes. So four weeks is kind of a slam dunk for seeing something, you know, Do you and, treat the parent. Or well, you know, sometimes well. it's, <laughs> especially in cases of um, sort of hyperactivity, especially in situations where the kid is real feisty, where the kid has some frustration, the kid has some anger issues, these kinds of things, you know, difficulty with authority figures, um, getting into fights at school or those kinds of things. Then I'm especially interested in, in the parents because that situation arises from the milieu that the kid is in, right? So kids aren't going to develop anger issues sort of in a vacuum. You know, it's, it's the family situation that's sort of creating that to some degree. You know, of course, constitutionally, they'll arrive, you know, a little bit livery maybe, but that has to be activated. You know, the kids are livery by, you know, lots of kids are livery, but then it's how do we deal with their liveryness? Do we give them some freedom? and some responsibility, you know, do we allow them that freedom that they want or do we kind of squash that freedom or every time they push the boundaries, do we use discipline as our main parenting style? This might cause more liver stagnation, causing them to be more feisty and that kind of thing. And so a lot of the times in the case of uh, hyperactivity, especially where there are these sort of mental emotional portions to the, to the pathology, then the parents are a little bit stuck in the sense that they're using discipline as their main parenting style. Mm -hmm. And it, what you have to do is kind of get them out of that. And a lot of that has to do with relaxing the parents' attitudes towards their kid. You know, because the parent may have some attitude, well, I wish my kid was a little more earthy, a little more sweet and a little more relaxed and a little more going with the flow kind of kid. And, you know, that was the kid they wish they had, you know, over and above. I wish we had a boy or a girl. Now they want their kids to be a certain constitution, right. you know, so then you just, you have to just relax that a little bit. So there are many instances where I might suggest to the parents like, hey, you know, Oh, you have knee pain? Oh, you should definitely come in for that. And then, you know, it's a bait and switch. So then it's like, okay, but also guess what? We can treat these, these emotional things that are happening here. Um, and so, yeah, and certainly in those cases where, I, where it's clear that the, the parenting style is playing into the kid's pathology, where it's clear that the household situation is mm -hmm. playing into the pathology, I, I may certainly recommend that the main caregivers try to get some treatment or something like that. Do you feel gestation plays a role as well? So you could look at your common conditions, ADHD, does gestation play a role in if a child develops ADD or ADHD? Do you feel gestation has any play? Well, certainly it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, looking at, there's a couple of factors here that could be interesting. You know, there's things like, like the question of when, like, okay, so when does the Shen enter the child? Like when, there's, so there, this was a question, this was sort of debated in, in traditional culture. When does the Shen enter the child? Some, some um, people believe that the Shen actually entered the child at uh, conception, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and so then they, there would be things like, well, you know, you shouldn't try to conceive a child, say, during a lightning and, or a thunderstorm or something, because then at the moment that the Shen is entering the child, then the, the, the thunder or lightning could uh, damage their Shen or something like that. And there was, you know, the, 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 the difference between sort of lovemaking and conception and that difference there maybe not necessarily understood clearly and so then if the shen is entering right at that moment then it would be better not to try to conceive a child you know during times or instances that are too extreme like a thunderstorm or they even had things like you shouldn't try to conceive a child for example <clears throat> on the longest and shortest days of the year right right so things like uh, the winter solstice the you know longest night or the shortest days or the summer solstice the right. longest yeah, days. Yeah. these are these are times that are too extreme and your child then could be extreme. You know, they could be extremely good, but they could be extremely, you know, sort of 
quote unquote bad. I don't like to use that word per se, but this then the, the Chinese culture being very practical, sort of pragmatic people being sort of the people of the middle path, it's better not to take the chance, you know? So if you're stuck inside during the winter months with a thunderstorm, it would be better not to try to conceive a child at that time. You know, so these things are traditionally said to affect the child's chen, right? So then you have other times where the chen might enter, you know, during maybe around the third or fourth lunar month of the pregnancy, then this may be a time. That's a whole other sort of realm of discussion is obstetrics and that kind of thing. Um, so then, then the, so the shen entering the child, this was a question. So then you have um, also this question of what we call fetal toxins yeah. in kids. And so you have this concept of, of, in Chinese medicine called fetal toxins and fetal toxins uh, in, in, in a sort of short way to talk about it is anything the mother does during the pregnancy that would tend to increase heat in the body then could increase heat in the child after they're born. So the child would be born with a relatively high amount of heat. And so this is things like a mother gets a febrile disorder or the mother eats too much spicy food or the mother themselves has a lot of mental and emotional stress. So many moms now working through pregnancies and in high stress situations. And so then this could be said to affect the child. Um, then, you know, things like, of course, you know, drinking too much alcohol or smoking cigarettes or drugs, anything, anything that would tend to increase heat in the child then, or tend to increase heat in the mother would then tend to increase heat in the child. And so then when the child is born, the child would be born with a certain amount of heat already built into the system. Mm -hmm. And the way that you know this is going on traditionally is through skin conditions. So if the child is, is born with some kind of, say, eczema, or typical things like cradle cap or mm -hmm. things like infant acne. You mm -hmm. know, like it's, for example, like why would a kid, a, a newborn child get a, a, a syndrome of, of puberty, things like infant acne? Well, it's maybe because of certain hormones that the baby's body is trying to conjugate, you know, testosterone and this kind of thing. Um, so, you know, these kind of maybe stress hormones and this, mm -hmm. this sort of thing. So, um, so these diseases though, being diseases of heat and often relative dampness, this, the body then is trying to get rid of these so-called fetal toxins. Uh, and so in Chinese medicine, if the child is unable for whatever reason to clear these fetal toxins effectively, then that heat can stay in their body. In fact, that heat can stay all the way through life and can affect disease later. So this heat now can be said to cause heat pathogens later in life. So you start to think about things like, well, gosh, what about the role that inflammation plays in heart disease? So in, two questions on that. When you're um, working with a child, does your questioning of the parents go into gestation? Let's say in a case of eczema or even ADHD, do you question the gestation period. And then number two, let's say there was some fetal toxins that were created. The mother was super stressed out. The mother did naughty behaviors that created heat, ate spicy foods, drank alcohol. Can it be reversed, corrected, mediated through TCM or some of the practices that you do in your, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, this is a question. So if we're gonna posit then that the hyperactivity is some kind of heat in the system wherever it may lie, then if, if, this, if this fetal toxin heat basically is running around in the system, then it may affect you know, this, this, this liver heat, kidney deficiency heat, heart heat, all of these different kinds of heat. So if I, as far as questioning around the fetal toxins, I don't end up talking about it. Too, I often don't end up talking about it too much with the parents unless my treatments aren't working. Because the, the, the thing is, is that at a certain age, you know, so let's say the kid is eight years old, say we have an eight year old boy, let's say who has hyperactivity, some oppositional behavior in the class, very common sort of situation. Um, you know, if, if they had a lot of fetal toxins, does that provide a lot of treatment avenues? You know, are there things that I can do that would sort of, in a sense, dig a little bit deeper? 
So rather than just clearing liver heat, rather than just trying to supplement their kidney in or trying to clear some heart heat, is there a deeper layer in which I can dig in order to try and, uh, you know, sort of supplement my heat clearing treatment? And to some degree, this it may be so. Um, that you may be able to dig a little bit deeper. I think a lot of the assumption is, is as you clear, as you, as you regulate the system through a normal sort of treatment situation, in this case, I'm treating, clearing liver heat, I'm supplementing kidney in, clearing kidney in deficiency heat, that a lot of those, the, the source of that heat would also hopefully be cleared. But admittedly, there is not a lot of discussion about this because the problem is, is that traditionally in China, this was not a big problem. This was something that was, uh, uh, you know, it was something that they talked about, but it wasn't the kind of thing where maybe it wasn't as severe as we see, you know, the more modern context. You know, I, I often think of the modern context as being a fairly kind of fiery situation. You know, it's like everything, I mean, the earth is heating up for God's sakes. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like modern context is very hot by nature and kids are getting hot, you know, kids are, we say it, don't we? Kids are growing up so fast. And it's like on some yeah. level, this is some function of heat entering the system maybe. So yeah, it's a, there's, so, so what you have is sort of a dearth of information. You don't have a lot of traditional discussion around this. I mean, I'm sure you have experienced this. You look at things like chronic inflammatory conditions in your adult patients. Are the traditionally Chinese were talking about this too much because this is pretty traditionally this is pretty exotic stuff. These aren't diseases that they were facing so much. You know, cancer wasn't heart disease. These things weren't as big a problem traditionally as they tend to be now. People are living longer, of course, all these questions. But so there's not a lot of discussion about well, what do we do about high levels of fetal toxins at the age of ten? You know, Chinese traditionally, the, the, you know, like well, that should have been cleared a long time ago by using treatments, by using herbs, things like um, making sure that your kid gets chicken pox, making sure that your kid gets things like the measles. Those diseases that produce a rash actually are a way for the body to clear these fetal toxins. So the traditional Chinese viewpoint is that these things, you're in a sort of symbiotic relationship with these things. Well, that's a pretty deep layer to dig into to try and clear fetal toxins and that kind of thing. So traditionally, we do have formulas for this. We do have notions about where this heat may reside. And so as an adjunct to, say, some liver heat treatment I'm trying to do, I may add points like spleen 10, you know, mm -hmm. I may add points like uh, do 14, different points to try and dig a little deeper into clearing some of this heat out. I may try slightly different formulas. You know, especially if the kid has enduring skin issues. Remember, we said that the, the surest sign that fetal toxins exist in a child is the skin stuff that emerge in the first couple of months. So if I'm dealing with a 10-year-old who has hyperactivity, but they also have skin stuff, then I certainly want to clear that skin stuff as much as possible. This heat may be playing into it. To your question, though, I think any degree to which fetal toxins are present in the situation, they would be a fairly somewhat subtle influence. And that I would say that the, the house situation and that heat situation, the house situation is a much more, is a much larger question. And if there are fetal toxins, it's playing into it, but I think it would be a relatively subtle. It's a very, all of that, a very roundabout way to get to that answer. No, I, I love it. it like, I want to ask real quick about eczema. So let's say you have a child that comes in with eczema, uh, presents with eczema, three-year-old, and um, how do you have any examples of being able to reverse that, mediate that, expel the eczema? That well, sounds like it's a clear sign of a fetal toxin. So what have been your experiences with that? Yeah, I mean, so generally the earlier a skin condition starts, then generally the more likely there are fetal toxins in, in present there. But in general, the assumption of eczema is, yeah, I mean, even if it's happening at three, if it's happening at 10, that likely there's, a, there's an element there of uncleared fetal toxin because the question of eczema, there's a couple of things that you can sort of take to the bank when you're thinking about eczema. So the first one is of course, typical dermatological thing, which is blood heat. So some kind of heat in the blood layer. And so 
but this is an interesting problem because, you know, what is this place, the blood, where heat can exist? It's not something we talk about very much. It's like, how did the heat get there? And what herbs do we have that clear heat from the blood? You know, is this a Wen Bing question? Is it, what is, what are we talking about here? And the dermatological uh, um, literature, and I've talked to a lot of dermatologists, they don't have much more to say about that. It's kind of interesting. So then would we say that these fetal toxins exist in the blood layer? And as, a, as an analog to this, are we talking about inflammatory markers or what, you know, what are we talking about here? So, so the first thing in eczema is you have this blood heat, that's assumed. Then the second thing you have is what we call, is, is basically kind of dampness in the skin layer, in this soli, this, this kind of interstitial layer, is there's dampness then in the interstitial layer. And these two things come together, this dampness and this heat, so this kind of almost this exterior dampness and this interior heat mixed together to create a damp heat condition in the skin. And then the question becomes, well, which one is more? Is there more dampness or is there more heat? Are they kind of equal? So then this becomes part of the diagnostic process. But at its root, all eczema is always damp heat, some, some, some ratio, some mixture of dampness and heat. Um, and so in that case, then, you know, there's, there's any number of sorts of treatments that are possible as far as, especially herbal treatments. You know, Alex was often using uh, the formula Xiaofeng San, and Xiaofengsan, if you remember, clears that sort of dampness and heat off of the skin layer. It doesn't really clear that heat in the blood, per se, but it does at least clear the symptomatic stuff. And the, the, the part of the eczema that's itchy, of course, is that wind on the exterior and the Xiaofengsan, of course, clears that wind. Um, so this would be one interesting formula. Um, you know, you have formulas like uh, Shirwei Baidusan. Mm -hmm. uh, so Shirway Baidus on the 10 ingredient miracle formula. And it, uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting formula because it's a Wen Bing formula that is said to pull toxins out of the blood layer and push them out through the surface. And so this is a formula that I use quite a bit for my, uh, um, for my eczema patients. Uh, another formula is actually just a simple Guajertang. Mm -hmm. And so you take Guajertang and you add uh, Yi Yi Ren. You add, uh, this one comes from Suzanne from the Jingfang tradition, and I've been using it a fair bit, especially my adult patients, and it works quite well. So you take Weijertang, you add uh, Yi Yi Ren, you add Fang Feng, Jing Jie, you add uh, Fang Ji, uh, Bai Ji Li, all of these things, then these things are said to clear this, um, you know, it's sort of the Guajertang almost acts as like a carrier. It, it kind of regulates the skin and blood layer in some sense. And then um, the Guajer may be carrying the herbs to the skin layer or something. Different descriptions might prevail here. And then the other herbs sort of clear the wind for the itching, clear the dampness and the heat in the skin layer and these kinds of things. So certainly different formulas are possible. Uh, as far as acupuncture is concerned, then things like, you know, again, here we are, the spleen 10, uh, LI11, do 14, these points that clear heat out of the system. Mm -hmm. Then, so that's all kind of the fancy stuff. Then, but at its most basic level, you know, when you're looking at a kid with eczema, of course, spleen is a big part of this because we're talking about dampness, we're talking about heat. So the degree to which then they're eating a diet that's that's sort of lending itself to the production of damp, you know, things like um, overdoing all of these rich foods, too much processed foods that we often think about, um, uh, too much dairy, too much wheat, too much sugar. I mean, I see so many kids eating sugar these days, it's strange. Um, you know, these, these kinds of things, then the degree to which those things might be affecting the, the production of damp, because remember we said you have to have this damp as a, yeah. as a component. So treating the spleen, of course. So um, Alex was often using uh, spleen five in this case over spleen three, because remember spleen five is the metal point. Mm -hmm. And so the metal point, that's sort of the connects the spleen to the skin connects the spleen to the lungs. And so, and you could even go one further and say that the metal point has an acrid sort of effect. And so it, it has that kind of clearing, warming, um, sort of moving that dampness out, you know, the way that wow. we think of with things like shishin and this kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, so for, you know, for like you know, damp conditions in the, in the fingers and these kinds of things. So um, 
this this so treat the spleen to clear that dampness use points to clear heat and between those two things this is uh, tends of kids would tend to be very responsive in so clearing heat clearing damp if the diet needs to be cleaned up then do that it tends to work quite well so you didn't go out you didn't seek pediatrics pediatrics came after you it landed <laughs> on your lap i love that i've done other interviews with other people that had very similar stories. Dr. Um, uh, Rosenfarb that does ophthalmology, it mm -hmm. fell on his lap kind of the same way. I love that. And I wondered if, uh, I'm looking at the time, we're getting close to closing, if you could share a story of a patient because you have been having a subspecialty in pediatrics for so long, I'm sure there's at least one case that stands out to you of like wow you know i can't i even you were even amazed at how tcm affected a certain situation child condition <sighs> i mean the, the, the stories are endless I mean, there's, uh, there's almost so many it's hard to think of one you know it's interesting the one of the things that i'm continually amazed by in pediatrics is is that and, and this is true of chinese medicine in general and you'll certainly have had this experience but it's this is especially true in pediatrics. And this was the thing that I think Alex pushed on me without me really realizing that's what he was doing. But this was an idea that he pushed on me a lot. And which is that if you look at the way children's physiology works, right? So we, for those of people who aren't sort of familiar with the way pediatrics works, and kids aren't just small adults, right? So we think of kids as basically all children always have a relative amount of spleen deficiency, lung deficiency, kidney deficiency, you know, they're still growing. These, these parts of their bodies are still developing, their immune system, their digestion, you know, kidney function, these things are all still developing. And in children, these are areas that you can always strengthen because it will always benefit their physiology because these things are always relatively, compared to like say adults, these things are always relatively deficient or vacuous. And then you have the liver and the heart are always relatively excess, right? So, and, and that's a lot of the emotionality and stuff that comes out. But if you have sort of um, spleen, kidney, and lung always deficient in kids, doesn't matter what kid, some kid may have a stronger spleen than another, but it's always going to be a weaker spleen than an adult. If kids always have weak spleen, kidney, lungs, and they always are excess in liver and heart, then right off the bat, one of the things that has just utterly amazed me about Chinese medicine is that I'll encounter kids that are in very complex situations, you know, where there's a long history already at the age of 10, for example, you know, so there's this really long history and you're just kind of, you're like, as the parent is talking to you, you're like, you're getting confused. I'm like, I get like racking my brain, like I've been treating a kid, she's got um, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. But that's not the only thing that's going on. There were also some kidney issues. There were also, you know, they're giving me a lot of these Western things, you know, there's like the liver issues, kidney issues, JRA and all of these different things. And the mom is telling me the story, I, I've been treating them a bit lately. Uh, and, and it's this very confusing situation. And I'm getting kind of bogged down by it's like, it's like more information than I know what to do with. And I'm trying to translate. I'm trying to get as many symptoms as I can. You know, it's like, well, I don't, I'm not sure what to do with this liver enzyme levels. I don't know what that is. But, I, you know, is your kid frustrated and these kinds of things. So I'm getting as many symptoms as I can. And I'm getting really confused because it's such, at the age of 10, it's already such a long history. And I have countless kids like this where I'm just getting these incredibly complex, long histories. And what's really beautiful about Chinese medicine and the thing that I think ultimately Alex really kind of like pushed into my brain was the notion that if you just understand one thing about kids, which is their general nature, that they have these deficiencies and excesses, that no matter what's going on in a kid, they have these three deficiencies and these two excesses. If all you ever do is just pick points to strengthen their say spleen three, stomach 36, doesn't get more generic than that. I pick lung nine, large intestine 10, doesn't get more generic than that. I'm picking maybe heart eight, you know, small intestine, just these very generic points. And I just get a treatment done. I'm amazed at 
how kids respond to that. They get better. And so I'm treating this JRA kid, and I was totally confused. I was totally confused. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to fall back on the teaching, which is just follow the rules. The rules are there's three deficiencies. There's two excesses. Just pick points that strengthen, pick points that clear those excesses, resolve those excesses. And sure enough, she was starting to get better. Different things started to resolve. And actually what ended up happening is the picture ends up clearing up for you. There's as extraneous symptoms start to fall away. Things that, are con that were initially confusing, now that stuff isn't a problem. Oh, she's sleeping great now. She's staying asleep at night. Like, oh, cool. I don't have to think about yin deficiency anymore. I can stop thinking about that. You know, mm -hmm. oh, she's not as frustrated as she was. Okay, good. Now I know that there was some liver component here that I wasn't necessarily seeing before as clearly. I can keep working on that. So it's like they come back with information that's useful. So if nothing else, for those people who aren't even necessarily interested in pediatrics or are new to pediatrics and are feeling overwhelmed by treating kids, you don't have to know exactly what's going on to be able to do a great treatment and to see really good results. Now, if you, if you know the perfect point locations, if you know the exact diagnosis, yeah, that gets you a little bit further ahead, but you'll be amazed at how far you can get just following those simple rules. I love it. Now, I know back in the past you were working on a book are you compiling that clinic manual still? <laughs> yeah. So what I've been doing is I've been working on actually putting out as many videos as I can. And Love that's it. what's that's doing is that's helping me to organize. My strength is more in you put me in front of people. I'll talk all day. But writing, I get like my ADHD comes out and the sun is shining. I'll go outside. But um, so what I've been doing is I've been using the videos as a way to organize my material. So right now, all the material is pretty well organized. I'm putting out videos. Um, not as quickly as I'd like, but you know how that goes. Um, so, but yeah, eventually the book will get done. I've had a few students actually, um, uh, like sort of uh, people with editing uh, experience and writing experience have approached me to uh, ask to help. So, um, so that would be nice as like maybe one graduate student <laughs> really motivated. That would push have the project the videos, are, are the videos, have you created CEU courses or educational? Mm -hmm. So you're still putting them together or do you offer those now? Yeah, those are offered. I have a few on healthy seminars. I have a few through, um, you know, a couple of different carriers. I think Lhasa OMS is carrying a couple. Okay. Um, so I, yeah, some of them are just recordings of professional teaching I've done at conferences in Canada and wherever. Um, and some of them are just videos that I made sort of this. Um, so yeah, so uh, there, there is information out there. So, so if people want to engage with you, they can go to your website, davidallenlac.com. I saw that you do online telehealth with patients. They could reach out to you there. Um, you also have, um, you said, healthy seminars, and LASA has some of your events mm -hmm. and CEUs and recordings on that. And Speaking I have a, there's actually an interesting, there's a good Facebook group, actually, the Pediatric Acupuncture Community, um, the PAC. And those are, that's a nice little group where there's a bunch of um, Robin Ray Green, one of my yep. pediatric colleagues who also has a lot of CEUs. And I recommend you guys reach out to her or look at her stuff as well. Um, she, uh, she put together a little Facebook group. So anyone who's interested in pediatrics, that's a good place. You can post case studies and some people will answer questions. And I'm on there a fair bit, especially if you kind of ping me on there, um, then I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at your case study. I also do a fair bit of um, sort of mentoring and that kind of thing via Zoom. So if people want to have a sit down for an hour or two or something, then we can, I'm happy to do that as well. And they just contact you through your website, mm -hmm. yeah, davidallenlac.com. Yeah, I'm easy to get a hold of. Well, this has been awesome. I want to thank you so much for, I could keep talking, but I'm looking at the time going, where did that time go? Um, so great to see you. So great to reconnect. Maybe we can, I hope, I'm planting the hope seed, my dream seed that we can sit down and talk again about other things in healthcare and medicine, in pediatrics and whatnot, because I just always love engaging with you and talking with you and seeing what you're up to. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Yeah. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for watching. Oh, take it easy. Bye.